Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we present the second half of a special two-part interview with award-winning author Candace Millard. Her latest book, River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile, was published in May 2022 by Doubleday. Candace Millard was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member John, better known as Jack, Farrell. And then... A few years pass and you decide to go to the jungles of East Africa to capture an amazing story of Sir Richard Burton, who some of us may have distantly heard of because his name sort of sounds like the movie star and somebody, somebody (laughs) it was, I mean, was he the one who was with Livingston and somebody who discovered Lake Victoria, but then you introduce these two other people that have been forgotten by history. How did you come across their story? Well, I first heard about it when I was at National Geographic and I was fascinated by it because A, it's the search for the source of the Nile, right? The longest and most storied river in the world. And for millennia, people have been searching for the source. It's more than 4,000 miles. And it was really the holy grail of exploration. But also it was these two men, as you say, it was Sir Richard Francis Burton, who was just this extraordinary character. He spoke 29 different languages. He'd already made himself famous as an explorer. He was an incredible writer. And then this guy, John Hanning Speak, who was just your average, comes from nobility, an officer in the British army. And they're just complete opposites, polar opposites. And it's a story of their friendship and the betrayal of that friendship. But, you know, I didn't want to tell a story that was about these two British explorers going into Africa and, quote unquote, discovering a place where billions of people had lived for hundreds of thousands of years. What interested me was I was reading one of Burton's accounts, and he talks about this man called Sidi Mubarak Bombay. And then Speak talks about him. And then Henry Morton Stanley talks about him. And David Livingston talks about him. And Vernie Levitt Cameron talks about him. And so I realized this is a story I wanted to tell. And Sidi Mubarak Bombay, he had been kidnapped as a child from his village in East Africa. He had been dragged to the coast, taken to Zanzibar, where he had been sold for cloth and then taken to Western India, where he was enslaved for 20 years. After the man who owned him died, he was given his freedom, and he made his way back to East Africa. And he became, without question, one of the, if not the most accomplished guide in the history of African exploration. So he took Burton and Speak to Lake Tanganyika, which is the the longest freshwater lake in the world and one of the deepest. They were the first Europeans to see it. And then he took Speak to the Nyanza, which is the principal source of the Nile and which Speak named for his own queen, (laughs) Victoria. And then he took Speak and Grant back to the Nyanza. So they're trying to confirm it, but never really circumnavigating it. And then he was with Henry Morton Stanley when he found David Livingston, you know, (laughs) Dr. Livingston, I presume. Bombay was there. Bombay was an, an essential part of that expedition because he had already been to Lake Tanganyika. That's where he found Livingston. And then 
he was with Vernie Levitt Cameron when they became the first to cross equatorial Africa from sea to sea. So he was really this extraordinary character. And as I said, I worked at National Geographic for six years. I was steeped in stories about Africa, stories about exploration, and I had never heard his name. It's like Matthew Henson. Yeah, who went to exactly. the North Pole with, with no, uh, and this, Robert Perry. This, yeah. yeah, again and again throughout the world, this happened again and again, where the, the, the people who really made it happen, without whom none of these expeditions would have even survived, yeah. um, have been largely forgotten. Yeah. Um, I'm struck by the role that fever and illness plays both <laughs> in the Roosevelt and the Burton stories. I'm stunned that Anglo-Saxon people went at all to those places because they were immediately struck down with these incredible diseases. How did they summon the courage or what drove them knowing that they would inevitably come down with malaria, yellow fever, whatever these other diseases were? And how and how much did that play an important role in the story? A big, big part, um, especially this story about Burton and Speak in Bombay, because the story, to a large degree, it's about arrogance and ignorance and how those two things always go hand in hand. So what drove them largely was fame. I mean, obviously, there's an interest in um, understanding our world, which is a, a natural human characteristic and can be a good thing. But everybody knew, you know, uh, we want to go to Africa, we want to explore it, we want to map it, and then we want to own it, right? And so it was the direct and intended consequence of exploration was colonization. And, you know, he who got there first got the fame and got the power and, and all these other opportunities. And so they were willing to risk their lives to try to answer this age old question, but also to sort of win this, this fame and power as well, certainly. Now you had a uh, moment of danger yourself in, <laughs> did you, did you travel Burton's path all the way from the coast into Lake Tanganyika and then to Lake Victoria? I did by plane mostly. That's again, it, it's so far. I mean, these expeditions, you know, they the main expedition that I talk about, the 1856 expedition, took almost two years. And so still today, if you're trying to walk it or, yeah. to, you know, with some a few donkeys, it's going to take just as long. So I started in Zanzibar. And uh, did a lot of research there. A lot of the story obviously takes place there. Many, many expeditions started there. And that's where the slave market, one of the um, most active slave markets in the world and where Bombay was sold, was there. Then I went to mainland Tanzania and I went all the way across to the west to Lake Tanganyika, which, by the way, that's where Gombe is, um, Jane Goodall's uh, research institute. So I got to do a little uh, chimp trek while I was there. <laughs> And then I went east again and then north to the Nyanza. I was in the southern part of it, where Speak and Bombay were first, and then to the northern reaches. The Nyanza, again, it's the, it's the largest lake in Africa. It's the second largest freshwater water lake in the world. It's 26,000 square miles of area. It's enormous. But then the um, Nile pours out of it in the northern reaches. But when I was on um, Lake Tanganyika, I needed to get from one bank to the other. And um, there had been a storm that day. And so the boat I was waiting for was delayed. And by the time it got to me, it was really dark outside. And this is a trip of a couple of hours to the other bank. And the boat, um, it's an, a wooden open boat. It can hold maybe eight to 10 people at most. 
so we started off and the waters were still extremely rough and we were just tipping uh, like all the way to one side and all the way to the other. And honestly, I was terrified. And um, my husband was with me because, like I said, he had been a foreign correspondent. He's very useful. <laughs> and um, so he usually goes with me on these trips. And um, I was scared. And I looked at him and I said, Mark, look how far that bank is. You know, if we capsize, there's no way we can swim that far. And he said, well, don't worry about it. The crocodiles will eat us before we get there anyway. So, And he's right. I mean, it's full of crocodiles. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't have to wait for you to fall out of the boat either. They'll come out and knock you out with their, with their tails if they're really hungry. <laughs> a great scene, a real life scene, very similar to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance <laughs> Kid, where I can't swim, Butch. Well, the fall will kill you. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's right. Um, there are two amazing episodes. Well, the whole book is amazing, but there are two ones that stick with everybody that I've talked to who have read the book. And one is about a certain beetle that likes to <laughs> crawl into uh, warm orifices. And, uh, <laughs> and the other is that Burton was a uh, a translator of uh, erotic literature, which offended yeah. his very staid wife. And uh, she decided that his reputation could not survive unless she uh, burnt his paper. So look out for those particular chapters. Thank you. Um, do you have a little checklist when you go out to a place like, you know, Hemingway always used to say, uh, weather is important. You know, I mean, uh -huh. do you write down smells, breezes, uh, foliage, but do you have a little checklist in your mind or actually down on paper that you take with you? I mean, for somebody who wants to write a biography, wants to go do the Texas hill country, right? Mm -hmm. And you walk around and you sort of say, yeah, this is pretty spare and, and lonely, but what are the little details that really convey the place that you're visiting. Yeah, absolutely. You want all those senses and you can get that from going there. You can also get that from reading the writings of other people and not just your main character. I've always been amazed by what I can find from other people who were there at the same time. For instance, with Churchill, before he was captured, he was sort of um, embedded with the army in this little town called Escort. And one of the gifts also, I will say, that I've been given for each of these books that I've written about is each of the men I've written about were themselves incredible writers, each one of them, obviously much, much more skilled than I am. And so it's so nice. You can just kind of quote from them all day long and they make you look amazing. So Churchill obviously wrote his book, My Early Life, is incredible about this sort of earlier, but also this um, part of his life, which I love and is also hilarious. It's very Churchillian. Um, but there also were other people. And I happened to find a book. Um, one of the soldiers who was there, he kept this diary and he wrote about things like the eucalyptus trees that were surrounding the camp. So there you know what it smells like for these men. He talked about what their mess tent was like, what they ate. He talked about they had this canvas tub that they would bathe in, you know, just all these practical things that make you really understand what life was like. And interestingly, the only reason I had access to that was that he kept this diary and it was passed down through his family and his great-grandson found it in the attic and decided to self-publish it. And I happened to find it. And it was just this really great resource for me. So it's just one of these things, you know, when you're doing your research, just pull on every thread. And a lot of times nothing will be there. And it's sometimes there'll be something really incredible that you can really use. And to answer your question, I mean, I don't have a, a physical checklist, but I, in my mind, I do know what I'm looking for. And I also know 
that you never know what you're going to find, right? You obviously set out, especially when you're doing the archival research, there are certain letters that you know you have to find, right? Certain diaries, you know, you've, you've, you've read enough to know, okay, I know that I'm going to need these certain things for sure, but I don't know what else I'm going to find. And sometimes it can be incredible and it might not actually word for word, make it into the book, but it really influences the book and sort of in non-tangible way. And I'll tell you a quick story um, to explain what I'm talking about. When, when I worked on my book about President Garfield, about the assassination of Garfield, I was in the Library of Congress. They have most of his papers there in the Madison building. And I had been there for several weeks because even though he was president for such a short time, he had been in Congress for almost 18 years. And then all the other players, you know, Chester Arthur, Roscoe Conkling, their papers are there as well. So I was there for a long time. And they have these very strict rules as they should. These are our national treasures. And so you can have, I think when I was there, it was like one cart at a time and you can have maybe four or five boxes on that cart, but you can only have one box on your table at a time and you have to take one item out at a time, right? And they watch you again, as they should. And, but this is Garfield, right? So nobody had really paid attention to him since he died in 1881. So I'm going through all these things and I pull out um, an envelope and the front of the envelope is facing the table. I don't know what's in it. I open it up and all this hair falls out. There's hair all over the desk. And I turn the envelope over and handwritten, the handwriting of Garfield's best friend who had been with him when he died, is hair clipped from Garfield's head on his deathbed. And I was like, crap. And I'm <laughs> you know, trying to blow it back into the envelope and thinking, you know, they're gonna throw me out. My career is over. But at the same time, I was incredibly moved by it. You know, this hair, it was amazing. I mean, it it looked like you could have cut it from your child's head yesterday. And it's just this really powerful reminder of the responsibility that you have when you have the audacity to think you can tell somebody's story, you better do everything you can to tell it correctly, right? And get all the information that you can and tell it to the fullest extent that you can. You know, looking at this hair, I thought, what a tragedy this is. You know, this, this man, he was 49 years old. He had a family who loved him. He had a young country that had put so much hope in him. He was so much promise. And it was such an unbelievable tragedy at the time. And it's been almost completely forgotten. And so again, like I could have never anticipated that something like that would happen to me, but it's one of the reasons that I love, I insist on, but I also love doing my own research because you never know what you're gonna find. And it's just such an important reminder again of the responsibility that you have when you set out to tell someone's story. So you are a bold, dynamic, dashing, skilled writer who goes to <laughs> strange places in the earth to become famous, sort of like uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Winston Churchill and uh, Sir Richard Burton. Has that uh, ever occurred to you that you actually yourself may in 20, 50, 100 years be the subject for a book like the ones you write? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, um, first of all, you know, I'm a 
middle-aged mother of three in Kansas. So it's not very exciting. I love my life, but there wouldn't be a lot to tell. But also, you know, I'm the fly on the wall, right? Things happen to me when I um, go to research these stories, but I'm not setting out for an adventure. I'm setting out to tell somebody else's. And like I said at the beginning, it's always been really important to me to not put myself in the story. And I know that some writers of history, especially um, narrative nonfiction, do put themselves in the story. And sometimes I think it works. You know, I have a lot of respect for that. And I understand everybody's approach is different. But for me, it's really important to step out of the picture completely. Also, like as a reader, I have to say, I don't like it when I'm engrossed in a story, I'm completely lost in it. And then all of a sudden, the writer will say, and I went there myself and it looked like this today because I feel like he's just grabbed me from the back of my shirt and yanked me out of the story or she. Look, I, nobody has longer acknowledgments than I do because I have so many people to thank and I have a huge section of notes. So if you wonder, how does she know that? Where did she find that? Who did she talk to? It's all there, but it's not in the story. So you can immerse yourself. I hope that's my hope that somebody gets lost in the story. And then when they come out of it, if they have any questions, they can go and look and the answers will be there in the notes or the acknowledgements. But I want them to be completely immersed in the story because that's what I want as a reader. Yeah. One last question. It's a, a poignant question. Um, we haven't talked much about Garfield. He gets shot, I guess, about halfway through the book. And then the second half of the book is an amazing story about uh, medicine and science mm -hmm. and the uh, flaws and limitations. I'm not sure of the timing, but somewhere along this line, one of your children got very sick and you right. made a trip to what those of us who have been there call cancer land. Right. And um, you had to deal with an entirely different world of mm -hmm. hospitals and strange smelling corridors and uh, yeah. people in white coats. Did that help inform the writing of The Destiny of the Republic? It did. Absolutely. And in fact, on the tail end, it also helped me with River of Doubt. So um, what happened is I I was finishing uh, the River of Doubt and I was just had the final proofs and against my first book and I'm really nervous and I'm expecting my second child. And um, I get a call from my doctor saying that they had seen something in the last sonogram and needed me to come in and do another one. And they found um, what they called at the time a mass in the baby. And it was the size of an egg in this little baby. And they needed me to have the baby that day. So I had to call my editor. He's in New York. I'm in Kansas City. He doesn't even know I'm pregnant because I'm thinking it doesn't matter. You know, I'm going to have the baby and it, it's not going to affect it. But I, now I'm like, uh, I need some extra time. And he was amazing about it. And he's like, don't worry about this. We'll figure it out because we thought we'd have to maybe push off the publication date. So they, I had the baby that day. Um, they found out pretty quickly that it was a tumor and that it was malignant. She had stage four neuroblastoma. I mean, she was born with stage four neuroblastoma. So she had surgery to remove the tumor right away. And then it ended up spreading and she had to have eight rounds of chemo. This went on then for years and it bled into the, my next book. And what I realized, you know, with, with Roosevelt, I had always thought of that story as a story of adventure, right? And these men going into the, you know, what to us at least was this unknown world and trying to map it and all the things that happened to them. 
But I realized that it's also a story about a father and his son and each saving each other's lives. Roosevelt was about to take his own life. He brought a lethal dose of morphine into the Amazon because he didn't want to ever be a danger to the other men. And he was. He got really, really sick. He couldn't even sit up, much less fight his way through the jungle. But his son was with him and his son would not let him die. And he realized finally that the best way to save his son was to let his son save him. And all of this sort of came to me as I'm sitting in these hospital rooms, this tiny baby, and she's hooked up to all these machines and the beeping lights. And I realized, again, this kept happening again and again and again. And as I'm writing then about Garfield, understanding that this was a real deep, deep tragedy, a deep wound for, for his family, for those who loved him and for this country. And it absolutely influenced what I did. And again, it emphasized this extreme responsibility. You know, you were talking about, I mean, it takes me five years to work on these things. I, I go to, it seems like extreme length sometimes to tell these stories. But again, if you're going to have the audacity to think you can tell someone's story, especially a story like Garfield's, where there was a tragedy at the heart of it, um, then you owe him and you owe the people who loved him and you owe the country that had put so much hope in him. Um, you owe them your very best. Candace, thank you so much. This has been my easiest interview. <laughs> I um, really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> Thanks and so uh, you truly are an astonishing, amazing uh, American biographer. Thanks. Thank you so much. That was award-winning author Candace Millard speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Jack Farrell about her latest book, River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile, published in May 2022 by Doubleday. This interview was recorded via Zoom on February 28th of this year. And we'll present the second part of this interview next week. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day. <laughs>